Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at the New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, the rise of the far right in Europe. Months after Donald Trump's populist victory in the United States, Europe's political reckoning begins as voters there confront similar questions of immigration and national identity. It's Tuesday, March 14th. Western governments remain dangerously blind to the danger of Islamization. Islam is a religion of peace, they say, but that is a lie. The Netherlands is known for its liberal politics and socialist government. Look at what happened at Istanbul airport. Look at what happened in Orlando a few weeks ago. But in this week's elections there, a far-right candidate for prime minister, Gerrit Wilders, is surging in popularity. At what happened in San Bernardino last December. The list is endless. And everything this list has in common is Islam. It's the same across much of Europe, in country after country. Donald Trump isn't the only politician striking nativist themes and gaining a popular following. It's happening in continental Europe, too. I think Marine Le Pen is going to win. I think she'll be the next president of France. No way. I uh, Way. <laughs> Austria and the Freedom Party took 36 percent of the vote in presidential elections over the weekend. The far right is on the rise. How did we get to this moment? There's a perception and a reality. Thank you guys for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Max Fisher and Amanda Taub are the interpreters. So you guys have been spending the past year traveling all around Europe, watching the rise of what is called the far right in country after country. What's the perception of why this movement is becoming so ascendant? So I think the popular narrative that's forming is that this is an issue of kind of economic inequality, that this is something that's happening in kind of sad, depressed, former industrial towns where the factories have closed or maybe places that have been hit by globalization. And they're kind of lashing out at their lack of economic opportunities and they're frightened of economic competition from immigrants. 
And the interesting thing is that the data just doesn't really support it. So like who it actually is, is it's white, it's blue collar, it's people who uh, might not necessarily have a college education, but actually tend to be doing okay economically and are like a little bit on the richer end for their cohort. These are people for whom the economy is working. And we've kind of centered on this like, oh, losers of globalization narrative. They are losing out, but it's in a subtler way that is so sensitive, we don't even like to talk about it. Let's talk about it. What's the real explanation for the rise of the far right in Europe? So I think what this is really about is immigration and demographics. A lot of these countries used to be much whiter. They used to be more separate before the European Union. And then in the last few years, there's been a really sudden influx of people And I think it's provoked a lot of stress, and that is what is driving a lot of this politics. They're losing out in the sense that about 50 years ago, we in the U.S. and Europe had this big debate over, on the one hand, we're liberal democracies that want to be pluralistic and we're very diverse. But on the other hand, for a very long time, we've had national identities that are built around a specific demographic group, white and Christian. And like those two things are intention. What are we going to do about it? The way that debate resolved 50 years ago was with this idea called cosmopolitanism, which is let's have a new identity that includes everybody and we're all equal. But that means that the majority groups in Western societies, whites, are going from a place of privilege in society and having society kind of molded to look like them and serve them first to that not being the case. That is a form of losing out and people are pushing back against that. And that has been accelerated in recent years by this big wave of migration in Europe, by some economic changes. But these are not people who are losing their jobs to China. These are people who are losing their privileged place in society. All right. Well, before we get too far, what is the far right in Europe and how is it different from the right in the United States? Yeah. So I think the best way to think about the far right is not as really left or right in the way we think about it in U.S. politics, but as basically a form of us versus them identity politics. So it's all about defining a group that is us and should get, you know, the benefits of citizenship and the benefits of you know, the welfare state and rights and things like that versus a group that is them right now in the case of the European far right, that group is immigrants um, and particularly Muslim immigrants who they are pointing to as a them who are dangerous. And right now we're in a period of change. So the last few years, there have been really rapid changes because of the refugee crisis. Let me just slow this down for a minute. When we talk about refugee crisis and Europe, just how big a change is this for any one country in Europe? Starting in about 2014. They keep coming, thousands every day at the main There are station. so many of them. All of them, they just want to go inside. Large numbers of refugees started coming across the Mediterranean into Europe. Desperate men and women who'd handed over hundreds of dollars to cross the Mediterranean in small, overcrowded boats. The result has been that millions of people have come to Europe to seek asylum and refugee status. Often greeted by applauding locals or welcoming volunteers. But the interesting thing is that the political response has pretty much been very similar across Europe. Not everyone welcomes the newcomers. Early Monday morning, a fire burned down a shelter for 80 refugees. Five retreated at hospital. Which is the rise of this kind of populist politics where people say they're afraid of immigrants, they're afraid of this kind of change, and they want to restore control. 
Well, so when I think about this kind of mm-hmm. us versus them and wonder where this is coming from, my mind always goes back to this fascinating 2002 Harvard study of um, Somalia. So <laughs> stay with me. This is going to make sense. Um, it used to be the case back in, I think, the 80s. If you ask people in Somalia, it's like, hey, what is your ethnicity? What is your identity? They would say Somali. They would say, that's who I am. Just like if you would ask you know, most Americans, what's your identity? They would say American. But then something really interesting started to happen when they had a big food shortage and mm-hmm. famine in the 90s, is that this period of scarcity and resource competition where people couldn't get enough, researchers started going back and asking people again their identity, and they didn't say Somali anymore. They started to reference their clan. And then over time, they started to go for even more granular senses of identity, like sub-clan or tribal group. And so what you saw happening is that people literally changed how they thought of their own identity. In Europe and in Western societies, it's a subtler form of scarcity and resource competition. It is the perception. It's not real, but the perception that jobs are becoming harder to get. And so like, therefore, migrants must be competing with me for those jobs. And how does that play into the phenomenon of the rise of the far right? Because the the far right is willing to say what no other mainstream party is willing to say, which is, yeah, you are in competition with these other groups. That's right. Immigrants are scary. They are coming to take your jobs. They are a threat to your identity. You are different from them. C'est le fondamentalisme islamiste. Et vous devez le dire. Car si vous ne le They're not part of us. You can't see me, but I'm air quoting us. None of that, strictly speaking, is, is true. Um, in fact, immigrant assimilation has gone fine for a very long time in Europe. But these far right groups that are outside of the political mainstream are willing to say things that nobody else is willing to say. And that really appeals to this sense that people have of a like fracturing, narrow identity in conflict with other groups. And if the European populations, as you two have both said, are essentially wrong about just how much a threat these new people coming into their countries are, then what exactly is triggering this sense of scarcity to go back to Somalia? Even if it's sort of an illusion, is it potentially terrorism? I think terrorism is a way to talk about this, but it's not really what's going on. So I just went to this town called Panko. Um, it's it's a neighborhood, actually, of Berlin on the outskirts of the city. And the AFD has done really well there. A far-right anti-immigrant party in Germany has made big gains in three regional elections. That have only been around for a few years. The Alternative for Germany, or AFD, has secured enough votes to enter state parliaments. In, in this district, they won more votes than any other party. They've done extremely well in local elections. And in national elections, they're polling at about 15% right now, which in Germany is a lot. So there's something going on there. They see what's going on in Berlin. Thousands come out to protest. Their message, no more refugees, Germany is full. Which has taken a lot of refugees and also just seen a lot of immigration in recent years. And to some people that seems interesting and cool, but to some people it seems frightening. Every Monday night, he told us, we come together peacefully. We are not Nazis, he says. We don't want to be labeled as Nazis and we don't want to be painted into the right-wing corner. We just don't want to become strangers in our own country, he says. The issue is that the places where you see this big far-right backlash 
are not places that are themselves experience a lot of immigration, but they are next to dear citizens of Berlin towns getting lots of immigration. This ideal of a free society that shows solidarity, this is what many people from all over the world think of when they think of our tolerant and open-minded city of Berlin, a city that is open to the world. And it's that proximity that is leading people to have this backlash. Yeah, social scientists call this the halo effect because often it means that there's this ring around big cities that almost looks like a halo of pretty white working class suburbs that support far right parties. And what research onto this shows is that the people who get most upset and most freaked out by change are people who aren't experiencing it themselves, but are kind of close enough to see Mm. it. Um, So maybe they commute through it every day or when they head into the city to go out to dinner or something like that, they see it and They don't understand it. They don't interact with those kinds of people. And so it feels frightening to them. So there's an upcoming election in the Netherlands. And I wonder what it tells us about the rise of the far right in Europe. The Netherlands election is a pretty interesting example of this. All the polls show that Geert Wilders is likely to, his party is likely to either get the most votes or come second. Um, And he is absolutely an example of this kind of far-right populist politics. But the question is, will far-right parties get enough voters to upset the existing political equilibrium? Are we voting will this party for freedom, for our freedom, our freedom, our rights, our Europe? Will there be enough voters, enough people to make a difference politically? And I'm fed up with the whole stupidity of importing Muslim scum into Europe. And that's the whole problem. That's it. And I think what we're already seeing is something that hasn't gotten nearly as much attention as these really splashy candidates who say controversial things and get headlines. A lot of people call him a racist, but he's not a racist because... He said, if you are a foreigner, you can stay here, but just follow the rules. But is maybe even more important, which is that the populist platforms and policies are kind of starting to spread out to the other parties. And it's not that the populist candidates are persuading mainstream parties to be populist. Mainstream parties are going to say, oh, my God, we're losing our vote share to these people on the far right. We need to change our platform a little bit to try to accommodate some of these ideas. A lot of politicians disagree with it, but they didn't really stand up against him. And therefore, it has become more and more normal to say these things. More people are starting to believe it because it's not really challenged. This is something that for a long time people dismissed as just a protest or just a few disaffected people who could never be reached. But it's gaining influence, it's gaining popularity, and their ideas are spreading. As you've been traveling to all these European capitals, I wonder how often the name Donald Trump comes up and the rise of Trumpism in the United States. What do you hear from people? Honestly, I think I'm going to start taking bets on how long I can go before somebody asks me about Donald Trump. It's not long. It's minutes, not hours. (laughs) I think Trump, especially for people right now where Europe is grappling with this kind of far right populist politics as well, has become this like I it kind of reminds me actually of the mirror in Harry Potter. This mirror where you can look in and you see the thing that you kind of most want to see. Gives us neither knowledge or truth. 
So everyone looks <laughs> in and everyone sees something else. I think everyone looks at Trump and they see either what they most want to see or what they most fear. Do the far right leaders that you two meet with, do they identify with Donald Trump? Yes, they, they do. But they're often careful not to say that explicitly because they know that that brings certain political liabilities with it. Donald Trump is not popular in Europe, but they do understand that the message that he is carrying is very similar to theirs. And they like the idea of a fellow traveler running the West's most powerful country. Max and Amanda, thank you very much for this intercontinental episode. Thanks. Thank you. Voters in the Netherlands head to the polls on Wednesday. Back in the United States, Iowa Congressman Steve King, an ally of President Trump, went on Twitter over the weekend to praise Gert Wilders. Wilders, the congressman wrote, quote, understands that culture and demographics are our destiny. We can't restore our civilization with somebody else's babies. That tweet was widely denounced, but Congressman King is standing by it. And I've said the same thing as far as 10 years ago uh, to the German people and to any population of people that is a declining population that doesn't, isn't willing to have enough babies to reproduce themselves. And I've said to them, you cannot rebuild your civilization with somebody else's babies. You've got to keep your birth rate up and that you need to teach your children your values. And in doing so, then you can grow your population and you can strengthen your culture. You can strengthen your way of life. We'll be right back. This fall, history is happening. September 14th, 2021. Hamilton, the Tony, Grammy, Olivier, and Pulitzer Prize-winning musical, returns to Broadway. Tickets are on sale now. Performances begin September 14th. Hamilton, back on Broadway at the Richard Rogers Theater. Learn more at hamiltonmusical.com. Here's what else you need to know today. 24 million Americans would lose their health insurance over the next decade under the Republican plan to replace the Affordable Care Act, according to a highly anticipated analysis from the Congressional Budget Office, a nonpartisan watchdog. 14 million of those would lose their coverage in the first year. Republican leaders who have crafted the plan, like House Speaker Paul Ryan, say they expect a drop-off. You're never going to win a coverage beauty contest when it's, it's, it's free market versus government mandates. If the government says, thou shall buy our health insurance, the government estimates are going to say people will comply and it will happen. And when you replace that with, we're going to have a free market and you buy what you want to buy, they're going to say not nearly as many people are going to do that. And the White House is casting doubt on President Trump's weak-old claim that Barack Obama wiretapped Trump's phone during the 2016 campaign. He doesn't really think that President Obama went up and tapped his phone personally, I think. But, but I think there's, a, there's no question that the Obama administration, that there were actions about surveillance and other activities that occurred in the 2016 election. The president used the word wiretap in quotes to mean broadly surveillance and other activities. The White House has missed a congressional deadline to provide any evidence of such a wiretap. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. I'll see you tomorrow. To our listeners in the Northeast, stay safe out there. When times became uncertain, Wampley pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, 
Wamply has helped 1 million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Wamply helps small businesses thrive. Visit Wamply.com to learn more.